Well, we're continuing in this series that we're calling The Way of Jesus. One of the most difficult aspects of the way that Mark presents the way of Jesus is that it includes rejection. When Jesus announces the good news of the kingdom, not everyone accepts it. Many reject that message, reject him. He ends up going to Jerusalem to be crucified, indecisively rejected by people. And when Jesus calls people to follow him, he is telling us in the Gospel of Mark that it will include sharing in that same kind of rejection. So as we follow the way of Jesus, we experience what he experienced in that sense. Just as he experienced rejection, so too his followers will experience rejection. So as we come to Mark chapter 6, we find three stories that may not seem very uplifting and encouraging at first, because all three stories have this common theme, this common thread of rejection running through them. We see Jesus rejected, his disciples rejected, and his forerunner, John the Baptist, rejected. And these three stories work together to give us this message. Rejection will be a part of following Jesus. There is a social cost to being a follower of Jesus. And this is a message that we need because we're living in, you know, an increasingly post-Christian culture. Christians have received a lot of a cultural acceptance in past centuries, but now things are changing in the West. The culture where Christianity was largely accepted, now there's an increased uh, social cost to following Jesus. But now Jesus uh, brings with him if you follow him, a liability, not a positive net gain for your standing in community. We live in faithfulness to Jesus, and then we'll sometimes be socially rejected or rejected by close family members or other peers. If you ask someone to consider reading the Gospel of Mark, some may be open to that. We, we trust that that will happen because the Holy Spirit's at work and God is bringing people to himself, but many will not only reject the offer, but reject you for making that kind of encouragement or offer. If we share the Bible's view on social issues like gender and sexuality and the sanctity of human life will be viewed as backward and even bigoted in our culture. And so this is uncomfortable. And so we don't want to be rejected, understandably. But if we don't know that this is actually a part of following Jesus, then we will be disillusioned when it happens or we'll be tempted to adjust our views to no longer match Jesus's because we don't want to incur the same kind of rejection that he receives. But the gospel of Mark gives us an encouragement to remain faithful to Jesus no matter what. It shows us that if we follow Jesus, then we need to be prepared for the rejection that comes with following him. So let's read these stories um, together in Mark chapter 6, the first 30 verses here. The first two stories are fairly brief, and then the third with John the Baptist is a bit longer. He went away from there, Jesus went away from there, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, 
Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Second story, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Story number three, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Or he, yeah, she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And now one more verse, verse 30. The apostles, the ones who were sent out, returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we thank you that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and can penetrate to the deepest parts of us. And so we pray that that would happen uh, as we consider your word. We pray that your spirit would take it, do whatever you need to do in our minds and hearts with this. We pray that you would transform us into the image of Christ as a result of being here this morning under your word and your powerful work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Following Jesus brings with it a social 
cost. So let's look at these three stories. We see the rejection of Jesus, the rejection of His disciples, and the rejection of His forerunner. So first, the rejection of Jesus. So Jesus is now returning to His hometown, which is Nazareth, and He brings His disciples with Him. So this isn't just kind of a a visit home for a holiday. He's actually on mission to His hometown, which is why He brings His disciples with Him, and then He teaches there. But when these people who knew Him As he grew up, when they heard him speak, they were dismissive. Did you notice the questions they asked him in verses 2 and 3? There's a tone of negativity here. Where did this man, not, oh, wow, where did Jesus get this? This is great. Where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him it says. So they're incredulous. They're offended by him. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus tells them his own interpretation of what's going on in this moment in verse 4. He said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. In other words, familiarity breeds contempt. So there's something going on with the human condition here. We can tend to take offense uh, when people are successful around us, right? When people we're familiar with become successful. Maybe some of you experienced something like this even this past week, returning home, uh, visiting family. Sometimes, you know, you have your family upbringing and all these people you know and love, and then you leave and you have success in your career or your family Uh, or you have some big accomplishment that happens, you're striking out on your own, and then you return home, and people are not only unimpressed, that can actually be a good thing, right? It can kind of ground us realizing that we are still who we are, Uh, but sometimes they can actually kind of almost take offense at uh, success that happens. We can feel unimportant, and that's what Jesus experienced here. I think there's something deeper going on as well. It seems that they're offended by the ordinariness of Jesus. I mean, those questions they ask, they're, they're saying, how did he get so wise? How did he get the ability to do these miracles? Isn't this just the boy from the family we know? I mean, I mean, his sisters are right here. I don't know where he got this stuff, but I'm not impressed, right? It's like, it's like the, the grown-up child comes home, and it's like, I mean, where did he get this fancy car? I mean, come on. Not impressed. There may even be a bit of resentment here. It's like Rocky said to his friend Polly, the truth is we both started out on the same corner and I got lucky with my life and it's driving you nuts. Right? This happens. So Jesus' own hometown closed themselves off to him. And the tragedy here, right? Because this isn't just kind of the son who just returns home with a nice car. It's the son who's coming to help his family who needs the help. And they say, well, where do you even get this money? Get out of here, your, your fancy stuff, right? They closed themselves off to him. And he came to bring the blessings of the kingdom to them. He came to bring eternal life to them. This is the author of life in their midst. Truly God, truly man. Coming to bring them the healing that every human heart longs for. Reconciliation with God. Full forgiveness of sins. Entrance into the kingdom that's dawning and will one day come in its fullness with a new creation breaking forth. And they 
dismiss him, take offense at him. They couldn't look past the ordinariness of Jesus. And so verse 5 says that he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Elsewhere we read about Jesus marveling at someone's faith. Here he marvels that these people don't believe. And they don't want his help. Jesus doesn't help people, heal people who refuse him and don't trust him. He was there to bless them. They closed themselves so off to him. So when it says that Jesus couldn't do many mighty miracles around there, it's not that he didn't have the capacity as if they somehow limited him. I mean, we just saw in the past weeks he's calming a storm. He has power over disease and death itself and an army of demons. But this is here saying that he's not going to heal the people who don't trust him, who don't want him. What a sad moment. So then he goes off to teach in other villages. And this leads to the second story, which is the rejection of Jesus' disciples. It's a strange time to send his disciples on mission. They just witnessed Jesus' rejection from his own hometown, and then he sends them out to carry on his ministry. So why would he send them out on the heels of rejection? Well, we know one thing is true here. The benefit of this is that they get to be sent out with proper expectations, Jesus is teaching them to expect them, expect the same things that he experienced. So notice how he sent them out in verse 7. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. So he's calling the twelve to him, this kind of new Israel, twelve disciples representing the twelve tribes to spread the blessings of the kingdom to Israel and then ultimately to the nations, right? Fulfilling this long hope through the Old Testament of God's blessings coming to Israel and the nations. And so now it's beginning. He's sending his disciples out to spread this blessing, and anyone can get in on it, welcoming people into the kingdom that's breaking into the present world through Jesus' ministry. And he sends them out in community, right, two by two. He doesn't send them out in isolation. Jesus himself modeled this kind of communal vision of mission, right? He himself gathers disciples around him, travels with people, then he sends them out in pairs, and then we see this pattern throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul would go out on his missionary journeys with other people, a man named Barnabas, and then they join other people, other people join as they go, and then he went out with Silas, and other people join as they go in ministry there. It's always why we send and support missionaries as part of teams. The mission in the New Testament, like community, is just this richly relational, deeply networked reality. And so, what are they sent to do? Well, they're sent to extend Jesus' ministry. So, here in verses 12 and 13, there's a summary of their mission, and they have the same basic holistic approach as Jesus. So, three activities that Jesus always did together in the Gospel of Mark is that He was preaching and teaching about the kingdom, He was healing people of their diseases, and then He was casting out demons. So, those three things always go together. Sometimes Mark abbreviates and just picks one or another of those three, and then we find out Jesus was actually doing all three of them. So the same things here with the disciples. It says that he sent them out with authority over demons, but it's not like that was the only thing they were doing, because here in verses 12 and 13, we get another summary, and it says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. So there's the proclamation and teaching, and they cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So this is that same holistic ministry that Jesus had. He never just taught, 
nor did he just do good works. He always had those together. He was showing the power of the kingdom and telling the power of the kingdom, always together, and he sends them out, and they do the same thing. Now, one note here, Mark summarizes their message that they proclaimed with one word, which is repent. Um, Again, Mark is, he abbreviates all the time. So, just because he said they went out and proclaimed that people should repent doesn't mean they kind of walked into a town and just said, repent, right? This is the same word that's used in John the Baptist's ministry, where he was calling people to repent for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus uses this word in the summary that Mark gives in Mark uh, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. For his ministry, he was announcing the good news of the kingdom of God and calling people to repent and believe the good news. So, repentance and faith are always together, even if just one is mentioned and not the other. Sometimes Mark and other New Testament writers do this. They call people to trust, but that doesn't mean they don't repent. Or they call people to repent, and it doesn't mean that faith isn't involved. They actually always go together. You can't, and biblically, you can't have true faith without repentance. And it's not real repentance unless it's done out of a heart that's trusting in God for the grace that He gives in response to repentance. And so these things always go hand in hand. So the disciples are carrying out this message. They're no doubt announcing that God's kingdom is dawning in the world and that anyone can get in on it by trusting the king and repenting, turning. Uh, That's what repentance means. It means turning. John Calvin defined defined repentance this way. He said, it is the true turning of our life to God. I love that summary the true turning of our life to God. Not just a change in our thinking, not just kind of stopping sinning or something like that, but it's a turning away from a life oriented away from God, neglecting God, considering Him as irrelevant, wanting His gifts and not Him. It's turning away from that way of living and turning with our whole life, our true self to God. And we receive His acceptance and grace through Jesus. So the disciples went out to extend Jesus' mission, and then Jesus includes this note of rejection. Verse 10, when you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So this means that they will receive the very same kinds of responses that Jesus received. They just witnessed him being rejected. And now Jesus is saying, now you go out and let me tell you what to expect. Not everyone's going to welcome you. Some will reject you. Some will be drawn. Some will be offended. So we should have the same expectations today. For you, for me, and for Christians around the whole globe, throughout every century, this is the expectation that we're given. That God is at work to draw some people to himself through the message of Jesus and others will reject, not only the message, but the messengers. And so, as we send and support missionaries, we shouldn't expect immediate success. We shouldn't expect overwhelming success. We pray and hope for that, and the Lord gives renewals and revivals, and we pray for that, but we don't have that as an expectation guaranteed every time. Um, It's not realistic because Jesus has not given us that expectation. So sometimes the, resp- the response isn't even just rejection, it's actually worse, it's violent, and that's where the third story goes. So in verses 14 to 30, we see the rejection now of Jesus' forerunner. 
chose the beheading of John the Baptist. Now, this is a strange story in a lot of ways, um, but it's connected to what we've been seeing in the first two stories. It's another story of rejection, and Mark puts it here very intentionally. So, I want to just share something about the way that Mark often organizes stories, the way he tells stories. Um, Mark links up two stories together in a unique way often to show them, show some kind of relationship uh, between them, and he does it in an interesting way. He often begins one story and then pauses, brings in another story, and then he comes back to that first story. So, in other words, he inserts a story in the middle of another story. So, he does this so much that scholars of Mark's gospel call this this way of writing the Markin sandwich, right? Because it's like a sandwich. You have one piece of bread and another piece of bread, and in the middle is something different, right? Meat or whatever you put in your sandwich. And so, we saw this last week, actually. Jesus was on His way to raise a girl from the dead, and then Mark pauses that story and inserts this other story. As Jesus is on His way, He heals this other woman, and then he continues the story, and he raises this girl from the dead. And there's actually a lot of connections between the two stories, because Jesus is, or Mark's showing us there's a deep connection between those two stories. He'll, he'll do it again. It makes sense later in the gospel of this cursed fig tree. Um, if you've read ahead and you're like, what's with that? It's, there's this cursing of a fig tree, and then Jesus' action in the temple that's very similar, and then he comes back to the fig tree. So anyways, Mark does this a lot, and he's doing it right here. So, if we look back at verses 7 to 14, you see this second story, Jesus sending out His disciples on mission, and that story actually isn't over. Mark paused that story, and then he inserted this story about John the Baptist. It's actually a flashback. It doesn't even happen at this point in time. And then after this flashback story about John the Baptist, in verse 30 then, he concludes the story of the disciples sent out on mission. So, your Bible translation may insert headings. Those aren't part of the original text. Those are just ways of following the story, and that could make you think that verse 30 is part of what's following, which it is part of it, but it's a hinge. It's actually tying back to this previous section. So, look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. So, that's the end of the story of the disciples there. Jesus sends out the disciples, and then they come back and report. But Rather than just saying that earlier, he inserts this story about John the Baptist. So, Mark is doing this in order to show there's a deeper connection between these two stories. The bun is the disciples going out and coming back, and the meat of this story is John the Baptist. So, what's the connection? Well, here's how one scholar put it. He said that Mark is leading us to consider what John's death means for discipleship and mission because it's inserted right into this story about discipleship and mission. So, let's consider what happened to John. Well, this is a flashback. The disciples head out on mission. King Herod, or this leader, Herod, hears about it. The rumors were spreading. People are wondering what's going on as Jesus is becoming popular. And Herod has a pain of fear in his heart when he starts hearing about this ministry spreading. And so, he's thinking, oh no, this is John the Baptist, raised from the dead, because I cut his head off, and now he's back. Herod knew that John was a prophet. He uh, was conflicted in what he did, and now he's, 
fearful. And so Mark takes this opportunity to include this flashback to explain what happened to John because it matches this theme that he's connecting here in this chapter. So John had been telling Herod when John was alive, he was telling Herod that his marriage to Herodias uh, was not right because Herodias was um, Herod's brother Philip's wife. And so Herod took her and John is confronting him about this, and Herod doesn't like it, but he still is intrigued by John and what he has to say. And so uh, Herodias, the woman, was mad at John for this, and so they had him arrested, and she wanted to have him killed, but Herod didn't want to kill him, because even though John was a prophet rebuking him, there was something about John that he liked. And so he was perplexed, but also intrigued. And so he wanted to keep John alive. But then there was an opportunity that came. Herodias kept brewing, and so Herod throws this big party and on his birthday, and Herodias, uh, her daughter, ends up coming in and dancing for Herod's guests. So this is probably a drunken party, probably um, not moral kind of dancing here. And Herod makes this over-the-top promise to her, a public oath in front of these guests, saying that she can have anything, anything she wants. So she asks her mom, Herodias, and the one thing that she wants is John the Baptist, his head um, on a platter. And so she gets what she wants. Herod's conflict, conflicted. He likes John, but he gives in to the peer pressure, um, the societal pressure here. And so he sends for John's head, and Herodias got it on a platter. So Mark ends the story then with John there, and then he returns to the story of the disciples, and they're coming back to Jesus. So picture this like a movie. Jesus sends his disciples out on mission and prepares them for rejection. Then the scene changes, and it's a flashback to John's beheading. And then the scene comes back, and we see the disciples coming from a distance, coming back, telling about their ministry to Jesus. So the question we're asking is, what's the connection here between these stories? And it's this. This is an early signal in Mark's gospel of the, showing us that the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. John was a forerunner for Jesus' ministry. He prepared the way for Jesus, but he wasn't just a forerunner to Jesus' ministry. He was a forerunner to Jesus' death. There's a lot of similarities to the way that John died and the way that Jesus will end up dying. Think about this. As with John, when Jesus dies, it's with a political ruler, Pilate this time, who's pressured to put Jesus to death. As with John, this ruler is conflicted because he thinks that Jesus is innocent. As with John, this ruler gives in to the pressure, the peer pressure of the crowd. And as with John, Jesus is killed when the ruler chooses the acceptance of the crowd over justice. And so here's the point. John lived faithfully on mission, and he was rejected, and he suffered, and he died. John was a forerunner to Jesus' life and his death. And so his beheading points forward to the cross of Jesus. It's an early sign that Jesus will face the same kind of suffering, because if we're reading through the Gospel of Mark, we're just getting these hints and these foreshadowings that everything's not going to turn out well for Jesus. Of course, now on this side of the cross, we, we know what happens to Jesus, but Mark is showing us that even in Jesus' ministry, 
This was already foreshadowed. There was already signals, and Mark's drawing attention to these along the way. And so he puts this flashback in and links it with the disciples being sent on mission as well. And so the connection there is that this isn't just about John and Jesus. This is about the life of discipleship. This is the path that Christians walk. This is the path of faithfulness to Jesus and His mission. It's the way of rejection. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. If you follow Jesus, you can expect the same. Now, Jesus talked about this a lot, actually. I mean, it's all over the Gospels, right? He said, a teacher's not above, or a student's not above his master. If they did these things to me, they're going to do these things to you. I'm sending you out of sheep in the midst of wolves. He says, people are going to kill you and betray you, and even your family members will reject you. And he says this stuff regularly to prepare his people for rejection. But here's why this is ultimately hope-giving. Because Jesus' suffering and death is unique. He's not just saying hey, I'm going to suffer, you're going to have to suffer too. His suffering is unique because he suffered in a way that John never did and you and I don't have to if we trust him. He suffered in a way that was bearing the weight of our own sins upon himself. So he died in our place taking the eternity of wrath and hell that you and I deserve. He took that all upon himself so that As we suffer, it's temporary because He brings in a new creation that we get to enjoy forever one day, and the suffering won't be all gone. So our suffering's temporary, and we suffer knowing that He's working it together for our good because He's in control. And so He suffered for our sins so that we can have forgiveness. And so, in other words, the good news is the way of Jesus isn't just the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross and the resurrection. That's where, that's where the cross leads. And so as you and I follow Jesus, we have to go through the cross, through our own suffering and rejection, but resurrection's on the other side for us as well, even though it shouldn't be because of our sin, right? Our life should be suffering, then more suffering forever because of our rejection of God. But Jesus came to take that eternal suffering for us so that the way of the cross becomes the way of resurrection for us. So three stories. And here's three uh, lessons as we wrap up here. First, to follow Jesus means that you and I, if you follow Jesus, you are sent on mission. Uh, This is at the heart of the story. All the way back in chapter 3, as Jesus called his disciples to himself, there were two purposes. He said that he called them to be with him and then to be sent out on mission. And that's what's happening now with these disciples. They've been with him. And now he's sending them out on mission. And so these are the two purposes that we have as well, to be with Jesus and to be sent out on mission for Jesus. Uh, When you trust Jesus, you receive his grace, you receive his forgiveness, you enter into his kingdom. You don't just get to stay in that kingdom, you get to invite more people in. That's what we're called to do Um, right now even. And so, we see the disciples living this out. They're with Jesus, then they're sent out on mission, and their pattern becomes the pattern for all Christians. This is the way of discipleship. We're saved, and we're sent. If you are a Christian, you are saved by the Lord Jesus, and you are sent out on mission for Jesus. One of the purposes of your life becomes inviting people to consider following Jesus themselves as well calling them to enter the kingdom. 
inviting them to receive the grace that you have also received. Second, Jesus not only sends us out on mission, He also teaches us to expect rejection. That's a clear lesson from this text. He'll start, Jesus will start making this message even clearer the closer He gets to the cross. In Mark chapter 8, He tells His disciples plainly for the first time that He is going to Jerusalem to be rejected and to suffer and to die and then to rise again. And then He tells His disciples in that moment this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So Jesus says, I'm headed to the cross, and the way of following me, the way of Jesus, is the way of the cross. And so we see that the disciples actually did live this way in the book of Acts. We see the Christians lived on mission, and they received the suffering that Jesus said would come and the rejection that would come. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are thrown in prison for speaking about Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, this disciple of Jesus, is stoned for speaking about Jesus. Then this persecution breaks out, and Christians are even displaced. Um, The apostle Paul himself, before he was a Christian, was persecuting and rejecting Christians. Then he became one. And he received that kind of suffering, rejection, run out of towns, and received all sorts of kinds of beatings for following Jesus. And then he himself told a disciple of his, Timothy, he said that anyone who wants to live a faithful life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if we're to expect a degree of rejection for following Jesus faithfully, now that suffering will look different in place to place. In the West, it hasn't looked like much, actually, but brothers and sisters across the globe have experienced beheadings even like John the Baptist. That's not something from just long ago. That's that's happening even today. Um, And here in the West, we can expect a strong uptick in rejection. Post-Christian America is not looking very friendly uh, toward Christians. If you identify with Jesus, you can expect eye rolls. You can expect emotional distance from people who don't like that you follow Jesus and trust the fullness of the Bible. You can expect people to think that you're anti-science or you have phobias about different people. You can expect people to think that you are a moral bigot or uninformed. You can expect to lose your job for not going along with certain agendas that would compromise your trust in Jesus. And so, we can expect suffering. But the final lesson is this, we have a choice to make. And the choice is to choose Jesus or acceptance from others. There'll be situations where you are going to need to make that choice and maybe already have in many ways. We won't be able to avoid it. We'll need to choose Jesus and social or social acceptance or choose Jesus or family acceptance. So how do we make the choice in the moment when it comes? How do we decide to stay faithful to Jesus even when it means being rejected by someone in that moment? Well, here's three brief encouragements to lead us to choose Christ from this text. One, Jesus already prepared us for this. So let's anticipate that day may come. Let's not be caught off guard and confused when that moment comes. When it comes, remember, Jesus told me this this very kind of moment would come. And so... 
I can trust him through this. He's preparing us so that we aren't confused. He's setting expectations. He's helping us get ready for those experiences. That's a form of love. He's giving us the perspective we need in those moments to remain faithful to him. Second, Jesus has already experienced this. So when we come to those kinds of moments, we can know not only that Jesus told me this would happen, and this is all part of following him, we also can know Jesus knows what this is like. Like He experienced this. He showed his disciples his own rejection at Nazareth by close friends and family, and then he sent them out. And so we know that Jesus knows what it's like to be ridiculed and rejected and for people to be offended at him. And he is with you by the Spirit in that moment to strengthen you to stay faithful to him as he's faithful to you. And then third, the cross shows us that Jesus has already received the greater rejection so that we can go through those moments accepted with a capital A. We can step into every day knowing that no matter what happens, no matter what kind of rejection we face, we are already now and forever unchangeably accepted because Jesus took our condemnation and rejection on the cross so that we are accepted with him now and forever. So we can step out into every day knowing that we have something that no amount of social rejection can take away. We have the approval and acceptance of our creator and the one who saved us and redeemed us. He's with us. He's our truest friend. Uh, And the way of the cross will lead to resurrection. So the more we rest in that kind of acceptance, um, the more freeing it is to want to share Jesus with others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, and we recognize that your words here in Mark 6 are hard because you're holding out in front of us an expectation of something that we do not want in many deep parts of us. And so we pray that you would give us the strength to embrace this wholly and to do this with joy set before us, knowing that on the other side of rejection is resurrection and through rejection is acceptance and that you are with us and you love us and you're for us and you use our uh, voices to spread the gospel that others might be welcomed in to receive what we have received as well. So we thank you for including us in your kingdom, and we pray that we would be faithful to you out of the joy that you give us from knowing you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.